This morning we are going to be in Joel chapter 2, so turn there uh, with me if you haven't already. John last week, John Hansen gave us an overview kind of of the whole book of Joel with a particular emphasis on Joel 1. And you'll remember, hopefully anyways, that there is uh, destruction in the land. And Joel's kind of a unique book. There's not a lot that we, we know about Joel. We know who his father was. And he tells us in Joel 1 of this locust invasion that has come upon Israel. And it's wreaking havoc and the oil is gone and the wine is gone. Um, and the grain is gone and there's destruction in the land, and Joel uses this locust invasion of epic proportions to paint a picture of a future coming day of the Lord. And, and as Scotty said uh, this morning, we are going to be uh, going through chapter two and talking about the power uh, of true and genuine repentance. We sang this morning in a couple songs, uh, "Perfect Submission" and "Blessed Assurance." Right? Perfect submission, all is at rest, and and my hope is only Jesus. And while those things are true uh, in an ideal sense, I don't think that any of us could sing them with a perfect conviction that that is how we live our lives on a consistent basis, right? That my submission is perfect, <laughs> that my hope is only ever in Jesus, but because those things are not exclusively and always true of us, Repentance is key, a key piece of what it means to follow Christ. So speaking of the destruction that was outlined in Joel 1, and we will continue with in Joel 2 this morning, I was reminded of uh, what seems to be commonplace uh, in the news today, either because things are changing or because information is just more available than ever before, but uh, of natural disasters and how the natural disaster in Joel in Joel's day with this locust plague is is not entirely uncommon uh, to us in this day either. <clears throat> I'm reminded of a, a tornado that took place in 1999. Uh, there's a, a, a podcast series I've been listening to lately called Survival, and it outlines these you know this guy that got attacked by a great white shark and how he survived, and these people who survived a bombing and how how they survived that. And there was one episode about this tornado that I don't even remember hearing about, but in 1999 in Moore, Oklahoma, it was an F5 tornado, and there were, there were wind speeds measured up to 300 miles an hour, which were the, the, the fastest winds that have ever been recorded through the history of, of mankind anywhere on the globe, um, 300, 320 in some estimates, uh, mile an hour winds, covered 38 miles over an hour and a half, took 36 lives and damaged or destroyed nearly 10,000 buildings. So you can imagine as this tornado rips through and carves a path through the landscape that, as we'll read in, in, in Joel 2, before it was like Eden, right? There's all, all the accomplishments of men and buildings um, and farms, and then behind it is just a swath of destruction. Or in 2010, the earthquake in Haiti, uh, where between 150 and 200 and 20,000 people were killed, and 280,000 buildings were leveled as a 7.0 earthquake hit the very poor country of Haiti. Or more closely to home, maybe 2017, the fires here in Sonoma County, the Tubbs Fire, which uh, started up in, in Calistoga and swept its way over the hill and down into Santa Rosa and into Coffee Park, uh, destroying 5,600 structures, most of them being, being homes and burning 
over 37,000 acres, which is something like two and a half times the size of Manhattan. Uh, my father's house was burned in that fire, and all of us who were here remember what we were doing the day before and the day of, and know people who lost homes, and just sort of a picture of that destruction that can take over an area and leave it desolate, and not only scarring the landscape, but also scarring our hearts um, for those who have been impacted by that. So here in Joel, we have likewise a terrible disaster, this locust plague that comes through. And in Joel 1, 4, it says, What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Nothing is left behind. Wine, fig trees, grain, oil, food, water are gone. The people are afraid. There's weeping. There's shame. Even animals are grown and perplexed, it says in, in verse 18 of chapter 1. There's darkness over the land. As you can imagine, this cloud of locusts covering up the sun, blotting out the stars. Gladness has dried up. There's no sacrifices to be made. The, the, the wine and the oil language sacrifice to be made in the house of God because of the famine, because of these locusts which have come through and destroyed everything in their path. And chapter 2, verse 3 says, Fire devours before them. Behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. So on that happy note, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your warnings. They're a grace to us, grace to your people. Lord, I pray that this morning you would help us to understand this word uh, and the severity of the situation, not only for Joel in his day and for Israel in their future, but also for all men now and all men in even a greater sense in this soon coming day of the Lord. We can, we can look out on the course of human history and be hopeful for the future. We can see this, this Eden that's laid out before us, but Lord, you promise that uh, that Eden will be destroyed because of your anger against sin. And yet you also promise that you will create a new heavens and a new earth, a place where righteousness dwells. Thank you for your church, who is the seed of this, this, this righteousness, Lord, the first fruits of your coming kingdom. We're grateful for the work that you have done in so many hearts here, and we pray that that work would continue this morning, not only for those who don't know you, certainly we would love that, but also for those who do. Bring repentance, bring faith, and in doing that, Lord, bring a great blessing where you will leave a blessing in your wake that cannot be compared with uh, the disaster that's left in the wake of these locusts or a fire or any other disaster that we have heard tell of. We thank you for the opportunity to be in your word and, and the uh, many years and men and lives that it has taken to bring it to us safely this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so verse 1 of chapter 2 of Joel says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. 
God here is angry. He's angry at the sin of his people, and we don't have in Joel, unlike a lot of the other prophets, a specific outline of what the sins were. We know only that in in verse 12, God says, even now to return to me with all your heart. So evidently Israel has turned away, and so the call is to return. Again, we don't have specifics as to how they have turned away, but it doesn't much matter. God is angry. He says, let the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. And an angry God may not fit in your, uh, in your vocabulary or in your view of, of who God is, but it's not foreign to Scripture. We read things like Psalm 5, 4-6, through 6, who says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Or Psalm 11, 5 through 6, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Wow. Wow. In Isaiah 63, 3-4, through 4, maybe, maybe most vivid of all, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments, stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. These are the words of the Lord. Sometimes... Reading things like that make me want to go back to the Sunday school Jesus, please. They, they, they may fly in the face of things that we hear on the radio. These words are not very positive or encouraging, and yet it is the word of the Lord. God here in chapter 1 is angry. I'm sorry, in verse 1 is, is angry. This is his day. This is God's day of redemption. And this is also his army. This, this locust plague that is sent as a picture for this ultimate judgment and coming day of the Lord is God's army. And chapter 1, verse 15 says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Chapter 2, verse 11 says, The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. In verse 25, it says, My army, which I sent among you. God has sent this army into his own land against his own people to punish sin because he's angry. And their call in verse 12 is to return. Joel is doing a good service here by writing to the people this warning, blowing this trumpet in Zion. I'm reminded of Ezekiel 33 where uh, Ezekiel is, is explaining the man in the watchtower and what the, 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 watch ta- the watchman's job is, right? To stand out there and to see if there's dust on the horizon, if there are horses coming, if there's an army coming. And then if there is, that watchman's job is to blow the trumpet, to sound the alarm, to let the people know that an enemy is coming. 
And if the watchman does that faithfully and the city ignores it, the blood is on the city for not heeding the warning. But if the watchman sees and does not blow the trumpet, the blood of the people is on his hands. And here Joel, recognizing his job as a watchman of the Lord, as a prophet, is sounding the trumpet that was commanded him to warn the people. Amos 6, uh, 7, I'm sorry, 3, 6 through 7 says, Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets, of which Joel is one. And before we go too much further here, I was thinking about this, this idea of sounding an alarm. And if I, if a picture came to my mind, if, 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 if there's a fly in my house, which frequently there are because I have four children who have not yet learned how to close doors. Um, there's a fly on the refrigerator or whatever. I, I get a fly swatter and I walk over and I swat the fly and it falls to the ground and I pick it up and I throw it in the garbage can. What I don't do is grab a fly swatter and say, fly, I'm about to swat you. I'm waiting. I don't do that. I do that kind of with spiders. I'll like let spiders go outside because I think they're cool. But I don't, I don't think it takes a second chance. I'll just swat the fly and it's gone. So what... What does it tell us about the heart of God that he takes the time to tell a prophet, I'm going to destroy this people, sound the alarm? Immediately, even before we get into the heart of the passage here, we have grace from God in the form of this warning. God takes the initiative to warn his people, and that is a great grace to them. 2 Peter 3.9 says, He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so this warning in verse 1 is a great grace that God shows to his people by the mouth of his herald, Joel, the watchman. Let's read 2 through 11 as we explore what more about what this judgment and calamity looks like. Halfway through verse 1, Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming and it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like that of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale, like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall, they march each in his way, they do not swerve from their paths, they do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great. <clears throat> and very awesome, who can endure it? Again, we have darkness, gloom, thick darkness, blackness. This army is unique. 
says their like has never been seen before. Fire burns before them, destruction follows behind them. The beautiful established edifices of humanity are brought low. The accomplishments of man are destroyed like Eden before them. It's a desolation behind them. Nothing escapes. People are afraid, verse 6. They have pale faces. The landscape does not deter them. They, they scale the mountains. Weapons don't stop them. They break through the weapons. Fortifications do not slow them down. They come in through windows like thieves. The armies of divine justice have been called forth for war. The day of the Lord is great and very awesome, verse 11. And who can endure it? This is an unstoppable force and an un, a helpless situation according to what we've read so far. No mustering of an army can stop this invasion. The people are helpless before the Lord's army on his day. We're going to skip for now down to verse 19. What I want us to see is the extent of the destruction ahead of time, what's being foretold, and, and uh, in some cases, because of this, this locust plague, what has already happened, Joel is using this as, as an example of a greater day of judgment to come. So we've seen the destruction, we've seen a description of the army, we've seen what's happened to God's people, and I want us to see now what comes afterwards, and then we'll explore that middle part together. So verse 19 through 27 reads this way. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, and his rearguard into the western sea. And the stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things." Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures in the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. Overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper and the destroyer and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people, people shall never again be put to shame." You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and that there is none else. My people shall never again be put to shame. What a contrast, right? From this destruction that's laid out for us in Joel 1 and continuing in Joel 2 to now what comes towards the end of Joel 2, seemingly a complete restoration of everything that, that had been lost. He restores to them the, the years that the locusts had taken away. Where before, 
grain and wine and oil are gone. Now he says, he's sending you, I'm sending you the grain, wine, and oil, and that vats are overflowing in verse 24. Before, the nation was a byword. Israel was a byword among the nations, 2.17, and now no longer a reproach among the nations. Before, armies are coming in by rank and in file, and they don't jostle one another. They're coming in in an organized fashion to destroy. And now the enemies are driven out in all directions. Where there was fear and trembling, now there's this exhortation to fear not in verse 21, to not be afraid. Whereas before the people were in anguish, now they're to be glad and rejoice. Where before the landscape is ravaged, now it says the, the land enjoys the early and the latter rains. The, 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 the trees and the crops were destroyed. And now it says that the vats are overflowing with wine and oil. God before was destroying his people, and now in verse 26, they're praising him. The people are praising him because they say he has dealt wondrously with them. So what in the world has taken place such that we go from complete and utter destruction to now the complete opposite of that, where everything that was previously uh, prophesied as being destroyed is equally now uh, abundantly available and being restored? What has happened? What event has caused such a drastic change for these people? Has God taken them to another land? Like the, the locusts came in and they destroyed everything. So now I'm going to take you and I'm going to put you over here. And now look at all these things that you have again. Is that, is that what's happened? Or has he given them the recipe for a very strong insecticide and airdropped crates of industrial strength uh, Fly swatters, and the people now have a weapon to fight back against these locusts. What has happened? What is the difference? Is God schizophrenic and has suddenly changed his mind and is no longer punishing but blessing for some odd reason? Or has he come up with some sort of arbitrary law or command that uh, thou shalt love the color yellow, and the people loved the color yellow, and now he's blessing them? Like, what has happened such that we have a completely different uh, outcome and scenario for these people from before after? One to one, completely different. Why has God responded this way? What has brought us from black to white? Let's go back now to verse 12 and get their answer. <clears throat> Verse 12 through 18 says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether or not he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep. And say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? 
the answer to the difference between what was happening, what was prophesied, and what God has brought about for his people. I think it's summed up in, in verse 12 when he says, Yet even now, return to me. Repentance is what brings these people from black to white. And it's this requirement that God has on his people to repent, which in our vernacular seems relegated to the crazy guy in the corner wearing an A-frame sign with big red letters that say repent. And yet repentance is what brings about life, where before there was only death. Repentance is the thing that so turns the heart of God that his affections are renewed for his people. I think it's helpful, and I'm sure you're familiar with this if you've been in church at any time, to, to consider what, what the word repentance means. And the, the Hebrew re- term for repentance is teshuva, and it means to return or to renew. And, and the Greek word is metanoia, which is, is, means to, to change your mind or to uh, turn around. So at youth camp, the picture was always of the, the, the t- you know, the preacher, the teacher, walking in one direction, and he's saying, on, on the path of life, you're walking towards sin, and you come to Christ, and you recognize that your sin is wrong, and so you stop, and you stop sinning. But repentance has this notion within it of turning around, of returning, and to go in the opposite direction. So we walk towards Christ. And I think that that's helpful. These terms do connote action, right? To to return, to change your mind, to turn around. And that's the action is good, but it's incomplete as well. How does, how, how does Joel put it, or how, how does God speak in verse 12? Yet even now, return to me, yes, return to me, but it says, with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Wickedness must, must stop. Sin must cease. And yet God, God does re- require a change in us where we turn from our sin and turn towards him and move in that direction. It, 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 it's a little bit trite, but I think it's, it's helpful that the saying that you know, God loves you just how you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. I think that's, I think that's helpful, probably. But there's much more to true repentance than cooperation or, or uh, thoughtless, unemotional obedience. God requires more than that. He says to return with all of your heart. And he says to rend your hearts and not your garments. Rending, rending your garments, tearing your garments is something that, that is common in biblical times and I'm sure in, in some cultures today. I think the equivalent in America may be like punching a hole in the wall. Um, but examples are like Reuben, when, when uh, Joseph is thrown into a pit and Reuben kind of conspires with his brothers to do this, and then the brothers leave and Reuben decides, I'm going to go back and pull him out of the pit. When Reuben comes back to Joseph, um, Joseph's not in the hole and he finds out he's been sold into slavery. At that time, Reuben tears his clothing out of, out of frustration and, and sorrow. King Joram in, in, in uh, 2 Kings 5, when Naaman comes to him, and Naaman's messengers say, hey, I hear that you can cure this guy of his leprosy. 
the king of Israel is upset because he feels like uh, Assyria, Assyria is, is uh, picking a fight with him. So he tears his clothes in frustration and in anger, in vexation. Or we think about the high priest when he asks Jesus, who are you? Are, the high priest says, Jesus, are you? Say, tell us plainly, are you, are you the Christ? And Jesus says, yes, I'm the Christ. And the high priest tears his clothes in anger because Jesus had the audacity to answer his question honestly. So here, the commandment is not to rend your clothes. Don't tear your clothes. Tear your hearts. Yes, tear your hearts. Uh, rend your hearts and not your garments in verse 13. God is after an intimate relationship with his people and simply changing their behavior is not what he's after. He wants their hearts to be changed. He wants them to return to him with all their hearts. He wants them to rend their hearts and not their garments. And I was, as I was studying through repentance and what, what true repentance look like, looks like, um, I came across a couple of really helpful blog articles. One was on Desiring God, and the other was on the Gospel Coalition. And I just want to read, read these for us. I think it'll be helpful in illustrating why it is that, that repentance is so important in the life of the believer in terms of their intimate relationship with God. Matt Erbaugh on Desiring God, he said, We must be aware that one of the biggest hindrances to obtaining a broken heart is our neglect of the relational aspect of sinning. By this, I mean that we can view sin as a failure of performance rather than a failure of intimacy. The only grief that we experience is disappointment in our inability to do what is right and not that we have despised the living God. Or Sam Storms in the Gospel Coalition writes, one must be grieved by how offensive and grieving sin is to God. Not simply afraid of God's retribution for your sin. In other words, repentance must be rooted in a high value of God, not a high value on oneself. Only then can turning away from sin towards holiness truly be called repentance. The failure to repent is thus a form of idolatry. Refusal to repent is to elevate our own souls above God's glory. But when one does repent, it leads to the forgiveness of sin, the removal of divine discipline, and the restoration of one's experiential communion with God. The restoration of one's experiential communion with God. And this is why God requires repentance, not that just changes, changes, changes actions, but also changes attitude. Um, you think, think about the first couple, the first couple very short and wonderful chapters of the Bible where Adam and Eve are in direct fellowship with God and it says they walk together in the cool of the evening and they have this intimate relationship where God is, is talking with Adam and talking with Eve and there's this perfect unity as they walk together in obedience and peace and love. And then chapter three comes and ruins all of that and here we are today but our sin against God is not just a matter of us breaking his rules, but it's a matter of, of disrespecting the one to whom all respect and honor is due. And not just someone that we should respect, like, like a president or, or a government leader, but someone who the Bible over and over and over again calls our father. 
So we are to return with all of our hearts. True repentance, in addition, if you're following your outline, uh, the next, next one here is recognizes the kindness and the mercy of God. True repentance recognizes both the kindness and the mercy of God. Verse 13, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether or not he will relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Pride, when we are confronted with our sin and, and the call to repentance, and particularly in light of the judgment of God, would say, God is so mean, he's going to destroy me if I don't repent. Humility in the same situation would say, God is so kind, he's going to love me and bless me if I repent. In both situations, for, for those individuals, is the same. They, they have sinned. And yes, God does threaten all kinds of disaster upon sinners, as we've read. But the humble man will see that God's kindness leads us to repentance. It's not that God is mean and therefore will judge us. It's that he is kind and therefore will forgive us. When God commands us to repent, he's not telling us to go cut a switch from the backyard. He's not inviting us to come and confess to, the, to, to a crime so that he can give us the death penalty. He is kind. Psalm 51, 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a contrite heart and a broken spirit. Isaiah 57, 15 says, I dwell in the high, high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite, not to, not to crush them down, not to make matters worse, not to burden you further with guilt or to drive home the offense. No, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. In Isaiah 55, 6 through 7, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Again, when God commands repentance, genuine repentance, he's not telling us to go in the backyard and cut him a switch. He's asking for us to come to him so that he can show us compassion and grace and forgiveness. True repentance recognizes the goodness and the kindness of God. Next, genuine repentance is enacted with a sense of urgency. We have another trumpet here in verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride, her chamber, call is the, the, the prophet here is calling all of the people together. And there's a sense of urgency to it. Blow the trumpet. Everyone come out together now. Repent before the Lord. Even the bridegroom, it says, leaves his room and hide her chamber. And in, in Old Testament law, there was a period of one year where uh, newlyweds had no, no uh, responsibilities basically whatsoever. 
they would have been exempted from this kind of thing. But Joel says, no. By the way, that would be great if we brought that back. I think that would be wonderful. He says, no, even the bridegroom, come out of your room. The bride, come out of your chamber. Repent. And do it now. There's a sense of urgency. The offense cannot be prolonged. The time is short. Judgment is coming. And moreover, blessing is coming. Why risk destruction by putting off repentance, especially when on the other end there's all kinds of blessing? Don't delay. Do it now. There's a sense of urgency to genuine repentance. And lastly, genuine repentance puts God's glory on display. Puts God's glory on display. Verse 17 says, between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your people, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Israel was given all kinds of, of uh, promises, all kinds of blessings. And the, pre- the promises and blessings of God were contingent upon their, their law-keeping. It was God's design that, that Israel should be the head and not the tail. And they were going to be blessed with wealth, with material wealth. They were going to be blessed with land. They were going to be blessed with peace. Uh, the promises of the Old Testament go on and on and on for God's people so long as they obey Him and walk with Him. And when they don't do it, Destruction comes upon them, and now God's reputation on some level is on the line, even though this is his faithfulness to them by keeping this promise, but the nations don't understand that, right? So the, the, the plea here is, make not your heritage or approach a by, byword among the nations. Like, look, God, if you allow this locust invasion and these enemies to come in and destroy your land and destroy your people, everyone around us is going to say, where is their God? And it's a disgrace to Yahweh. Not a bad tactic, I think, in in seeking the Lord's uh, forgiveness and favor is to put his own glory first. The model for Old Testament evangelism was, look, Israel, you're going to be so great that the nations are going to come to you and they're going to want to worship your God because of how prosperous you are as a people. That was kind of the plan. And we see that the sin of the people kind of messes that plan up. Because God withdraws his blessing, and they're all of a sudden not so attractive. There's nothing in Israel. The wine is gone, the grain is gone, the oil is gone. But repentance turns all that around. Repentance puts God's glory on display. New Testament kind of evangelism model is the Holy Spirit's going to give you power to go and to serve hurting people. And likewise, unrepentance for the Christian and I think a lot of times, too, just as an aside, we can think of a repentance as something that we do to, to come to Christ, which is true, that when we're confronted with our sin, we don't know God, we don't know Christ, the, one of the first things, like Scotty said earlier, that we do as Christians is to repent. That's true. But Christians are called to a lifestyle of repentance. And unrepentance saps the power of God. It saps the power of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> which is hard for me to kind of say as someone with a, you know, part, part of a, 
a segment of Christianity that has a very high view on God's sovereignty and man cannot thwart God's plans. God is going to do what he wants to do. And I say yes and amen to all of that. And yet we have examples in scripture where a lack of faith actually in some ways ties the hands of God, if I can say that without, without overstepping. 1 Peter 4, 7 says, The end of all things at hand is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and be sober-minded, it says, for the sake of your prayers. Or 1 Peter 3, 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Why? So that your prayers may not be hindered. Living a life of unrepentant sin and unrepent, un, unfeeling repentance towards God has a way of suppressing the ministry of the church, has a way of, 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 of quenching the Holy Spirit. First Thessalonians 5.16-22 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Do not quench the spirit. Abstain from every form of evil. And when we don't abstain from every form of evil, and when we don't take the evil that we have committed and, and commit that back to the Lord in, in an attitude of heartfelt, genuine repentance, we quench the spirit and we slow his work. I think one of, the, one of the maybe more extreme examples of this, which I've always marveled at, is in Mark chapter 6, when Jesus is in his hometown. And he's, he's talking about who he is, and he's going around preaching, and they're like, hey, isn't this the carpenter's son? Who is the, we, we know who this guy is. What do you mean he's talking about how his father is God? We know who his parents are. And in, in, chap, in, in Mark chapter 6, it says that Jesus in his hometown could do no mighty works there. Could do no mighty works there. And that he marveled at their unbelief. Romans 14, 23 says that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So these people have a lack of faith. That is sinful. They need to repent of that. And because of that, because of their unbelief, the work of the kingdom was hampered. Jesus could do no mighty work there. Unrepentance tarnishes the gospel's witness, just as we've seen here in Joel. The nations are going to call Israel uh, forsaken, and they'll wonder, where is their God? Likewise, unrepentance in the church today and in the heart of the Christian tarnishes the gospel's witness. Unrepentance ruins families, and families are one of the greatest witnesses that we have for the gospel. Unrepentance keeps people addicted. I heard it said and, and, and agree wholeheartedly that secrets keep you sick. Unrepentance keeps us addicted. In the church, unrepentance is, is particularly problematic and, and damaging. You think about leadership that you, you know in, in whatever churches you've been a part of. It's everywhere, unfortunately, but where a leader does something wrong, they, they take money from the church, or there's uh, there's an offense that they cover over that they shouldn't have covered over. Or there's a, a relational fight within the church and it's not dealt with properly. And so people walk away and there's a lack of repentance towards one another. And so the witness of the church is muted. And if that, inf if that information goes outside the church's walls, which frequently happens, then the church is also lambasted 
whether on the media or in local news or whatever, in the public square. And so the gospel becomes grayer, softer, less important, less impactful, impactful because of the lack of genuine repentance among the church. But in repentance, as we've seen, verse 27 says, You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no one else, and my people shall never again be put to shame. My people will never again be put to shame. And when God's people are not put to shame, God is lifted up, God is seen for who he is. Chapter 2 of Joel closes with a future prophecy that some would say has yet to be fulfilled. Maybe there's a, a partial fulfillment in Acts. I've kind of read some different things on that, so I won't get into it because smarter people than I have, have disagreed. But um, there, there is a future fulfillment of this day of the Lord. I think we can see this in kind of three different pieces where Joel and Joel 1 is talking about a very specific locust plague that actually happened, but in him telling that to the people, he's also foreshadowing or forecasting these future destructions that would come upon Israel because of their disobedience, whether the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Persians or eventually the Romans. But even beyond that, there is a future ultimate fulfillment that is coming in the awesome day of the Lord, as it's been called. A day, a day that no one will escape, where sin will be punished with finality. So in verse 28, it says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. I read earlier from... Isaiah 63, and we'll read it again for us. This is another description of this day of the Lord. It says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all of my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. The year of God's redemption is coming. This future fulfillment of God's wrath, God's judgment, God's anger poured out on his creation because of their sin. But there is hope, as we've already read. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. I am very thankful that God is gracious and merciful with that kind of righteous judgment coming. So why not repent? If, 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 if on the one hand we have destruction untold, and on the other hand we have blessings untold, and when we do repent, 
We're not met with further destruction or shame or guilt or burden, but we're greeted. A picture that always comes to mind, right, is the, the, the father of the prodigal son running down the road to receive back his son whom he had lost and said, this son of mine was dead and is now alive. That's the kind of greeting and reception that we have promised to us in Christ. And again, this is not just for people who are coming to Christ for the first time. But as Christians, we are to live this kind of lifestyle of repentance. Um, I'm reminded of the scene in Home Alone where um, there's old man Marley, who's the, the scary guy with the ice shovel who's going down. And there's all these rumors about, you know, how he hides bodies in trash cans and he puts salt in there to preserve them or whatever. So Kevin is, is very afraid of old man Marley. And towards the end of the, the movie, right before Kevin's going to go home and have his mac and cheese and set all the traps for the bad guys, um, he goes to a cathedral where there's a, there's a practice of, of um, like, like a kid's choir. And Kevin sits down and he's having this contem- contemplative moment. And uh, old man Marley walks in and he sits down right beside Kevin. And Kevin's horrified. And they slowly start to talk. And Kevin's confessing that, you know what, I've, I've been really mean and bad to my parents and my family, but I've, I've come to realize that I love them, and sometimes the people that we love the most, we hurt the most. And then old man Marley shares this story about uh, why he is there at this, at this uh, recital. And Kevin's like, oh, you're, why, why, are, why are you at the recital? And he's like, well, I'm not, I'm not welcome at the concert later. And Kevin says, not welcome? Not welcome in church? And Marley says, oh, everyone's always welcome in church. But my son, not welcomed by my son, because they, they had had this blow up at some point in their relationship, and so there was a fissure in the relationship, and old man Marley never talked to his son again, and his son never talked to him again. And Kevin says, well, why don't you, why don't you apologize? I'm sure he'd, he'd understand. I mean, the worst case scenario, you'd be, no, you'd be no worse off than you are now. And old man, old man Marley says, you can be a little old for a lot of things, but you're never too old to be afraid and he's afraid that this repentance that would, that would potentially open a door with his son would instead make things worse, or who knows what he's thinking. And then later, you know, he walks away, and then later in the movie, as the movie is closing, you see Kevin look out the window, and old man Marley is walking with his son and his granddaughter who was, who was at the recital, and he had evidently repented, right? And there's this unity that's brought back into their relationship, and now there's blessing because he gets to be a part of his granddaughter's life. I think that's a, a cool picture of how repentance can be scary, but repentance ultimately brings life to those who seek it. And it's not just for unbelievers. This is, again, something that Christians ought to walk in as well. Second Peter 3, 9 through 10 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done in it will be exposed. And at that point, it will be too late to repent. Further down in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are awaiting these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, not as a threat, Counted as salvation. Jesus himself, and we'll close with this, said in John 10, I am the door. 
If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes, the locust comes, the army comes, only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The abundant life comes at Jesus' expense and is given to the repentant. Repentance is the hinge that turns the doors of your destiny and my destiny. And as a people, we ought to be a repenting people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that repentance is an option. We are not a fly on your refrigerator. We are your children, and you love us. We thank you that forgiveness has been purchased, that repentance is what endows us with the righteousness of Christ. You are a holy God. You get sin. You do not pass a blind eye over our misdeeds, but you punish them, every one, either on Christ at Calvary or in hell on the day of the Lord. And Lord, while it is yet called today, may we return to you. As is, uh, I think I've said even recently, better a living dog than a dead lion. Hope is for the living. Lord, I pray that you would make us strong to repent when we need to repent and that we would not just change our minds, that we would not just change our directions, but we would rend our hearts that we would weep and mourn and that we would agree with you. And Lord, that as we come to you broken, you would heal us. Lord, that as we come to you low, you would raise us up with the love of a father. Thank you for Christ and the gospel. Thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that as your church is refined and as we become more a repenting people, that it would be attractive to the world around us and that the spirit would become strong among us because we have clean hands. In Jesus' name, amen.